and thank you for dropping into this episode of Reading Between the Wines. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, and I am joined by the Soam of the South, Miss Keegan Moore. Hi, everyone. And today we are discussing The Book of Two Ways, which came out in 2021 and a novel by Jody Pico. And if you know anything about Jody Pico, she usually does some pretty heavy, very daunting, very... Um, deep subjects. And this was kind of a diversion from that, which I was not sad about. She has some amazing books, My Sister's Keeper, um, Small Great Things that really deals with racism in America. 19 Minutes deals with school shootings in America. So, I mean, she really does take some of these very heavy topics and kind of puts them into ways that we can understand and discuss and really just see the other side, even if it doesn't, like the the Small Great Things is a great book about racism in America, but you could really understand and see both sides of that argument and situation. So, but that's not the book we're here to discuss. We're here to discuss uh, the book of two ways, which is a book about taking a different path in life. So Dawn is our main character, and Dawn is a death doula. She helps people transition from life into death, and she helps their families transition as well to having this loved one to not having this loved one. And and she does everything for them, everything from um, just running errands for them, making sure they have their favorite ice cream, to holding their hand in the middle of the night, to helping the family process all of the paperwork that's involved with death. Like she just really is kind of the jack of all trades when it comes to death, which is something that I think is a phenomenal job. Definitely a, it reminds me a lot of hospice, but she works a lot with hospice because those are some pretty amazing folks as well. But Dawn's in a plane crash And we start to understand that 15 years ago, Dawn made a decision to leave the career that she loved. She was an Egyptologist, uh, which is not something I had heard of before this book, but it is somebody who studies everything around Egypt. It studies their um, hieroglyphics. It studies their the things that are in tombs with them. It studies the different hierarchies of caste system of how people were deemed worthy enough to be buried in certain areas and how they were buried. Um, It really just studies everything that has to do with Egypt. But her mom gets sick and she flies home to be with her mom and her younger brother. And her mother ends up dying. She ends up getting ovarian cancer. Well, and she ends up getting custody of her younger brother. Oh, yes. She gets pregnant because she meets this guy, and, you know, he's kind of hanging around. So it, kind of her whole life takes a different turn when her mom dies. And she left Egypt 15 years before, never looked back, and it was truly like a, a heartbreaking moment. So she kind of has this pivot of two roads that she is down. She thought about going back to Egypt, but her— Her brother that she was now the guardian of was very young, and now she's pregnant and living with this guy, and it just kind of became easier to marry him because he was steady and easygoing, and Brian is his name, and he was an accountant. I mean, just very, like, traditional, predictable, everything that she needed in her life because her life had kind of spiraled out of control. Um, She named her daughter Merit, which is a unique name in the naming conventions. And you find out much later as to why she named her daughter Merit. 
But we talk about the struggles she's having with her relationship with her daughter. Her daughter's a teenager. I mean, she's 15, going through like some body image issues, and she's she's struggling. Dawn's struggling on how to relate to her daughter, as well as Merritt is struggling just kind of finding her place in life and dealing with the fact that she doesn't look like her mother or her father and that she's um, kind of a... She's really into science and, you know, things that that 15-year-olds aren't necessarily into. And so um, trying to get her way. So, again, fast forward to Dawn's in a plane crash. She's walking away from the plane crash, which a lot of people didn't walk away from. And the airline asks her, where would you like to go? And she's like, Cairo. (laughs) Yeah. Which is not something people normally would say post-plane crash. Like, I would like to get on a plane and go back to Cairo. And so she (laughs) winds up, like, back where she was 15 years before and walks back. I mean, like, it it was not easy to get there. And she literally has a backpack. She has no luggage. She has no clothes. She is not equipped for the Egyptian desert. She's going into areas that are not commonplace for tourists to go to. And she shows up at the dig site that she had been a part of 15 years before and is just kind of picks up where she left off. You know, I mean, she's walking into the library and she finds out that Wyatt, who had been her love in college, is now the director of the dig site. And he published his thesis and kind of gave a nod to her in a very nondescript way that no one else would understand when he quoted a poem and it meant a lot to the two of them, but nothing to anyone else. Then Wyatt walks in. Mm, You could (laughs) feel the chemistry. I could read the chemistry that was happening between the two of them, even after 15 years. So this book kind of goes back and forth between when they were in college and where she is present day. And for someone like myself who listens to a lot of audiobooks, this was struggling because I couldn't tell if this was like when she came back from Egypt or if this was post-plane crash. Like there was a lot of nebulousness I'd kind of ascertain that happened in the book because it wasn't obvious like, okay, this is post-crash or this is pre-baby or, you know, I mean, it was, it was, there was a lot of figuring out that you had to do for me in an audiobook. It may have been different for you and the actual book. I ended up going both routes because I could, but it was really nice to have the book. And so also you went see, two ways. I did go two ways. I went <laughs> both ways. But it was nice to see the hieroglyphs and to mm-hmm. kind of follow along with that as well. In addition to not being confused and like, when are we? Where are right. we? Because there was a lot, I mean, there's a lot of, I learned a lot about Egypt in this. And like, I can say, I feel like I can say Jehudinat. Jehudinat. <laughs> and I can't say it quite with the British accent that Wyatt has, right. but I, I mean, which is beautiful. Incredibly <laughs> easy on the ears uh, when Wyatt talks. But Wyatt had a nickname for Dawn that was just between the two of them and that he called her Olive. And it stems back from their very first meeting when he was trying a really lame pickup line on her and said, I bet I can guess what kind of drink, (laughs) what kind of drink you're going to get or, 
And anyway, she ended up ordering a dirty martini with olives, and that was not what he guessed. And so he called her Olive from then forward. And I think what's so great about that is that history there is that as this book progresses, that continues. Like he calls her Olive pretty much the entire book, with the exception of one scene, which I know had um, an effect on both of us. (laughs) Yes. So... Again, uh, her mother's dying. Uh, Dawn's mother's dying while she's in Egypt. She flies home. Her mother dies. She takes in her brother. Her brother goes on to become a neurosurgeon, and she's still very close with him as she's going through this transition with her marriage where, like, she's not happy. She's been married for 15 years, but it's kind of easy. It's known. And really until she gets into this plane crash, does she even have the thought of, like, what could life have been like if I had flown back to Egypt? And I don't know, have you ever had this kind of pivotal point in your life where you could have gone down two paths and you wonder what would have happened if you'd taken a different path? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> at least once. Uh, I guess the most important one would be getting married at age 22. And where would I be if I hadn't have taken that really side detour of my life in my early 20s and Mm -hmm. completely uprooted my whole life and moved to an island Mm -hmm. for that not to work out. Right. So here I am. But yeah, what about you? Uh, There's definitely been some pivot points in my life. um, And I won't say I'm unhappy with the paths that I've chosen at all. But there is, I think with every path and with every choice, there's a thought of what would that have looked like? For sure. And not necessarily a longing for that, or, but just a sheer wonder of what would my life have looked like if I had chosen that path. And I think that that's something everybody goes through, but not necessarily in as dramatic fashion as Dawn goes through. And so Dawn meets Wynne, who is a potential new client of hers, and Wynn is married to Felix, and and kind of that getting to know each other, just getting to know her life, she finds out that Wynn is an artist, and she doesn't necessarily paint anymore, and kind of this conversation about Arlo, their son, and Dawn unknowingly just kind of says like, oh, well, tell me more about your son, and how can I incorporate him into this? And Felix is like, if you can bring him back, then you really can work miracles. And we find out that their son Arlo had overdosed um, when he was a teenager. And it's kind of this heartbreaking story that we find out about. So we just know that Dawn is going to end up taking Wynn on as a client. I, I just kind of knew that. So Wynn makes this request of Dawn that she wants her to fly to France and deliver a letter to Thane, who is actually the father of Arlo. And Dawn's gone through a lot to try to find Thane because he went by a different name whenever whenever Wynne knew him, whenever he was her teacher, whenever they were in this relationship, whenever he painted her in the nude, Mm -hmm. they had this very, again, kind of this fiery, impassioned romance, but he went by a different name. And so it was difficult for Dawn to find Thane, but she did. And so now Wynne has asked Dawn to go and deliver this letter. And I mean, Written on the back of this amazing canvas that is just such an absolute representation of like Wynn's life and Arlo's life and Thane's life. And 
you can read so much into this painting. And then she's like, okay, now I've got a, now I've got the canvas. I can write on the back of it. And I mean, what a great, just, I don't know. I just felt like what a wonderful way to first receive a gift, you know, that you never, I, to receive a letter even, you know, to, that is just on this amazing canvas that someone has painted for you that depicts your life. But she goes to France and she is going to deliver this letter to Thane to kind of is going to ruin Thane's life because, you know. She rolls up on a happy family. Yes. And so she rolls up and Thane is married and got kids and they're sitting down to dinner and it's like this happy little French life. And she keeps thinking like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't ruin this life for a dying wish. And so she opts not to, um, to give Thane the letter. But what I thought was really interesting was in this conversations that Dawn and Wynne had had, Dawn asks Wynne, do you feel like you're cheating on Felix by sending this letter to Thane? And she said, I've spent my entire life with Felix feeling like I'm cheating on Thane. Yeah, that was pretty powerful. That was just, I mean, that's kind of the definition of this impassioned romance, right? I mean, she had not been with him in 20 years, but she spent her entire life feeling like she was cheating on Thane by marrying Felix, by having this kind of alternate life, quote unquote, normal life when she could have had this amazing artistic romance that traveled all of Europe and instead she's living in Boston and dying of cancer and not being an artist anymore. She has chosen to give it up. So she goes to deliver this letter. And I don't know about you, but after we read the Midnight Library and we did the the podcast about the Midnight Library, when she gets into the plane crash and you realize that like there's a moment when it says this could have been a whole figment of her imagination, I got very like anxiety riddled because I was so invested in this book at this point. And then to think like this whole this was thing, all a dream. This Seriously? whole thing could be fake. I was, I, I had a moment where I was like, oh my gosh, no, please. I think that there's several different kinds of love. There's definitely the, the easy, comfortable kind of agape love that like you walk into a room and you feel comfortable with this person. And then there's that like fiery passion, can't keep your hands off each other, but you hate each other. Like it just, this is more of an argumentative, like an Italian love, you know, like this just kind of (laughs) raging, I love you and I hate you at the same moment. And I feel like while she had this kind of agape love with Brian, like it's comfortable, it's predictable, it's easy. With Wyatt, she definitely had this sort of raging romance you know they had this huge thing in common with they spoke the same language they're trying to discover Jehudinat's tomb and there's a lot about the Egyptian culture in this book and I don't know I just was to think that this whole thing could have been a dream like really was conflicting to me and then to find out that it's it's not a dream and our author has perhaps let us down and imperfect path in that we find out that the plane crash doesn't happen when she goes home from France. She can't do it. She can't want to break up a family. This family. She really is like, I, even though it's Wynn's dying wish, dying directive 
for Don to fly to France and give him this letter, she really doesn't feel like she can hurt everybody who's involved because of this. So she makes a decision not to give it, and she heads back to the airport. And that is actually when, when she's in France trying to get, deliver this letter, is when she decides to go to Cairo because she decides she also has some unfinished business that she needs to discuss. And so that's when she flies to Cairo. And then she doesn't tell anybody. Like, again, she has a backpack because she was supposed to be on an overnight trip. And now she's gone from Europe to Egypt, and she's in Egypt, and she's with Wyatt, and they're having this relationship. And Wyatt is trying to help her discover this new tomb, but also re-indoctrinate her into kind of this Egyptology life. And I don't know, that romance, that attraction, that kind of heat. Passion, like true passion. She it, was enjoying what she was doing. Yes. And why it was there. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was a maybe a scene that you particularly enjoyed. Oh, I thought you enjoyed it also. <laughs> the sultriest scene of them all where they find each other. Yes. And they wander out. They wander the, out in, in to the, the desert. Des- I mean, it's Egypt. There's a lot of desert. In the sand. But he's like pouring bourbon on her and licking her dry. And it was like sand and pain and pleasure. I know. So we finally get to this point where all of their impassioned romance has come to, let's just say, a boiling point. And he calls her Dawn. Which he has never done. He's not ever called her Dawn. I mean, since the first time they met, he's called her Olive. But she finally says, I love you after 15 years, Mm -hmm. never saying it. And then she says, all it takes is a brush of a match in the right environment to start an inferno. That is what I think when I taste him and I am whisked backward through time. And it's like those 15 years of her entire life at, with Brian is like didn't exist. Insignificant. Yes. You know? Yes. Because she is right back there 15 years ago, standing in the desert with him at the airport in the rain, saying goodbye, even though she's had a lifetime of experiences in between when that moment happened. But at that moment, that match got lit and that inferno set fire. And and it was an inferno. <laughs> <laughs> and bourbon ensued. And whiskey was involved. <laughs> it was a very, um, definitely a juxtaposition of this kind of heightened sense of everything that she had wanted in her life but didn't yet experience because Brian was the great guy and, I mean, the solid foundation and everything that she needed in her life, but why it was everything she wanted in her life. And why it encompassed everything that she'd given up, you know. So why it really needs her, because all of Dawn's whole work was done about the Book of Two Ways. And the Book of Two Ways is an actual book that is placed in the tomb with the the mummified carsophagus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Taking me back to middle school Egyptology. Yes. And I just learned so much about Egyptology, but this has like all of the, this book of two ways has all of the different 
um, like spells and potions and all of the things that a spirit will need to learn about in the afterworld. And it had not been translated into multiple languages as it has now when Dawn had majored in this and had really like talked about this and thought about this and had researched this. I mean, she was a published author before she had even started her postgraduate degree. And that was unheard of for someone as an undergrad, um, which kind of bought her a lot of credibility when she decided she wanted to go and be in Egyptology with this Ivy League program. And I think that's what spawned a lot of that whole competitiveness with Wyatt because Wyatt had been the favorite. And then now Dawn kind of comes in unassumingly, right? not interested in Wyatt at all and his advances and was actually the person that she was hoping she'd never see again. And now the two of them are like competing for their professor's love and affection, yeah. you know, yeah. like to be, the, to, be, to be the favorite. Yes. Researcher. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, and so they kind of kept going back and forth, and Wyatt kind of had this arrogance about him. Again, he was an uh, aristocrat. Right? Uh, he was. He was an English aristocrat, even though he was always in search of his father's love, never really felt like he had accomplished anything, and never felt like his father was proud of him. And then Dawn, d- you know, didn't have anybody to tell her otherwise. You know, she was just like, I just really love this stuff, and I've known since I was a kid I wanted to be this. And this is something that she studied a lot, and she was kind of on the forefront and had been published before she was even in her um, graduate program. And so it was just a it was a lot that she gave up for everyone else. And she kind of felt like this is my moment and this is when I can reestablish myself. But she also had not planned for it. You know, I mean, again, she showed up and Wyatt's a little agitated that she's there to begin with. And he's like, fine, we'll get you some clothes. And if you're going to be a part of this, you need to at least be prepared. But that's how they discover the spot, right? Yes. Yeah. The... Other Jehudinat, I guess there's a lot of Jehudinats. It's kind of like Smith or Jones here in the United States. Um, there's a lot of Jehudinats, and so they had found this tomb that Wyatt had been searching for for a long time, and he really needed Don's talents to help interpret like everything that he was finding inside of this tomb. And Don happened to be one of the smallest people, so she could fit into the tomb. And I think that she was kind of Wyatt's safety blanket, you know, like use almost. Yes. Yeah. Definitely amused that, uh, she could definitely be there and he felt comfortable with her. He could trust her and kind of know that whatever happened, she was going to be by his side. So I just really, I don't know. There were so many things I loved about this book about how there were so many different paths you could take that there was so many different, things that could happen in your life and that there's no one right way to live your life that, I don't know, like even the craziest thing you can think of could actually happen. Even though one door closes, it doesn't necessarily mean that that door is never going to open again and that it's closed for good and you have to give up that portion of your life, that there's always an opportunity to come back to it. And I felt like that was a really reassuring kind of thing because we've all made choices in our lives and choices give direction and right or wrong, it just happens. So to know that paths can still cross or that ways can come back, I think was um, 
It was a really eye-opening experience. I also thought it was interesting why it was writing Dawn letters and looked up her alumni information. Yeah. And Dawn never knew. Yes, because of Brian. Because her husband was hiding it from her. Well, and he wasn't quite her husband yet, and he may have thought he was doing something beneficial. Like, he, I don't know. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's fair. Because he was kind of the stable one in the life. Is like she couldn't go through all the mail and everything that had come to her P.O. box and whatnot when her mom died. And there were so many bills and things like that. And she was just overwhelmed. And Brian, being the upstanding guy that he is, is like, let me take this on for you. Let me just sift through this. Let me sort out all the trash and give you the stuff that's important. He may have known he had a really great thing. He may have known that Dawn was way more magnanimous than Hmm. he could have experienced. So maybe he did know what he was doing. Maybe he didn't know what he was doing. But it was gut-wrenching to see Wyatt talk to Dawn about, I reached out to you. I wanted you to come back. Like, I wanted you and, and I you never just heard left from you. me. Yeah. Like you just disappeared. I I mean every the middle couple, of a project, right? And every couple of years I would reach out to the school and say, like, where is she? And they would say, Oh, well, this is her last known address. And I would send you a letter and you never responded. And she's like, I never knew. Like she went through her entire life thinking that Wyatt had just like closed that door and was like, okay, she's gone. We're going to move on to the next one. You know, the next crop of interns will come in and we'll figure it out. But there was one question that I did want to ask is this novel also kind of explores this concept of fate versus free will. Do you think that we determine our own destiny or do you think that it's already like predetermined for us? Well, of course, yes. It's a little bit of both. But I think once you're born as a certain sex in a certain country or within the United States, even what state you were born in. In a certain time period. And time largely determines like your general life path. And I think you do have free will in the sense to veer off of said path. But I can't just be like an aristocrat in England because that's (laughs) not my blood. Right. And I don't know. Have you had a DNA test? <laughs> I have not because I do not want 23andMe to have my DNA on file. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have life choices, but like it's within a certain track. Right. Right. There's still guardrails. I, I love I, everything I do in life. I do with guardrails. And I feel like that's a lot of what you're saying is, yes, you can have a path, but like these are the guardrails that you can have your path within. Like, these are the boundaries of your natural forest. So go explore, choose your path, but stay within these boundaries. Because, like you said, we probably aren't going to become English aristocrats in the near future, uh, but we can go out and become scientists, or we could go and become amazing podcasters that was not a life's choice that we knew was an option whenever we were born but or even in college (laughs) or even last year but it wasn't really a big thing right but even like if I would have been born in Boulder Colorado I think my life would be drastically different because Boulder is its own little bubble you know right right yes yes versus if you had been born in Coeur d'Alene Idaho which would have had a whole different effect on your life than you know the life that we've had 
But, you know, Wyatt was kind of vague about who was funding all of this. Um, He was very, he just kind of talked about the benefactor that was funding all this. And it comes to light after the scene we're discussing. They discover the the new spot. Uh, The bourbon. uh, (laughs) After the bourbon. Bourbon and sand. Uh that why it's actually engaged to this Anya. Anya, of course, Anya. And Anya is British royalty, which Wyatt also is. But Wyatt gave it up because he really didn't care about it. He wanted to be an Egyptologist and work at one of the Ivy League schools in the States. So it's kind of one of those like, okay, I mean, I understand that I'm married and now I just found out you're engaged and neither one of us are kind of in the ideal situation here, but what do we do? Like, how do we move forward? Oh, by the way, my 15-year-old daughter is actually yours. Spoiler alert! Yes. (laughs) Wyatt is Merritt's biological father. Yes, and the reason that she named her Merritt is because she is the goddess, like this Egyptology goddess of like femininity. And so she gave her this great strong name that has a huge meaning between Wyatt and Dawn that no one else understands, but the two of them. I think that Wyatt's like, oh my gosh. So Wyatt and Dawn are actually flying back from Egypt to to meet Merritt and flying back to Boston to try to figure out kind of what's next in these steps that's when the plane crash happens. And after all of this happens, after we've been led to believe she was in the plane crash when she's coming back from Europe, coming back to Boston, but decides to go to Egypt, we find out that's not true. Then she's actually coming back with Wyatt. Now there's a plane crash. And I'm like, I don't know how much more my emotions can handle. Like, cause they were talking about how all these people died and all of this. And literally in the plane crash, she is looking for Wyatt, and Wyatt is calling out Olive. Again, that's not her name, but that's just the name between the two of them. And it just, I don't know, it was this great moment that I had, like that I felt when they found each other and they were both alive. They were both two of the 36 people that survived that plane yes. crash. Yeah, out of 100 and some odd people, that 36 people survived, and they were two of them. And so then we go to the hospital, and that's when... Brian shows up. Brian's at the hospital, and he kind of finds out that everything that's going on, it never—Brian is very upset because he then finds out that Merritt's not his daughter. This is all while they're still in the hospital. Well, that was like a side thing, too, right? Didn't Merritt want to get a DNA test? Oh, he gave her a DNA test. Yeah, that's what she wanted for her birthday, right? For her birthday, Yes, I had forgotten that. Yes. <laughs> like, Gave her like a 23andMe, Ancestry.com kind of happy thing. Happy birthday. I'm not your dad. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and she gets the results back and she's like 97% English. <laughs> I was like, huh, whoopsie. Wow. <laughs> oh, did you know you had British royalty in your blood? Hashtag not your father. So Merritt discovers that that her dad is not her dad. At the same time that Brian, the poor guy who thinks he's her dad, and Wyatt's there, and now everybody is, is so confused because Wyatt keeps calling her Olive, and they're like, he doesn't I'm even like, know her, her name. name. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even know your name, and here you are, like, fathering his child, or, you know, he's the father of your child, 
Whereas I've been here and I've been the father of your child. I don't know. I just felt, I felt horrible for everybody involved. Like it just was, it's not a good situation, but I did like the way that they explored it so that Merritt and Wyatt are like in the front yard, Brian's in the house, Dawn's on the front porch. Again, it's kind of this transition. Like I feel like she's again guiding people through transition because I, Brian didn't do anything wrong and Wyatt didn't do anything wrong. And Dawn really didn't do anything wrong. She didn't know she was pregnant when she left Egypt and she came home and she thought that all of the morning sickness and everything was because of her mom dying and finding out that her parents were never married. So she had no money, no nothing. Taking on her brother and Brian being there, like it just, there was a lot of stress and everything that was happening. And so I don't feel like anybody did anything wrong. It was just really crazy chaos circumstances. It's like, okay, now what? <laughs> yeah. And so then to find out that, yeah, as a kind of side note, I gave you, a, I gave my daughter a DNA test for her birthday and shocking to everybody for the past 15 years, we've all been living a lie and didn't even know it. <laughs> well, Dawn was talking to her brother and he's like, you brought your boyfriend home to your husband? <laughs> Crazier things have happened. <laughs> Yeah, and they end up, uh, Brian and Wyatt married, like, sit down and have pizza together. I know. It was, it's <laughs> it's like... It's a very mature relationship, but yeah. it's a very odd relationship looking at from the outside in. Like, I feel like they are, they all have Merritt's best interest at heart. Exactly. And it should true. be how co-parenting looks as we move forward into blended families in the future. But let's talk about Wynn's funeral. I mean, Wynn had a pretty amazing funeral that happened when Dawn arranged it. <laughs> and I've worked a lot of caterings, and I feel like we should just drop this whole funeral thing, and it's a celebration of life. I am 100% in agreement. I have said multiple times to all of my friends and family, do not have a funeral for me. I want to have a celebration of life about a month afterwards where everybody can laugh and joke and drink and tell stories about me. I don't want people to cry. I want people to laugh. My whole goal in life was to make people laugh. And so if everyone gets together and cries, I feel like I'm, even in the afterlife, I'm going to be a failure. And Wynn's funeral was a lot like this. It was awesome. She wanted red velvet cake, sidecars with excellent cognac. What else did they have? Oh, she didn't want anybody to wear black. She wanted everybody to wear colorful clothes. Mm -hmm. And there were fireworks. It mean, sounds like a good time. That sounds like how I would like to go out. I mean, if you're going to have... If you get to plan your funeral, if you get the option to plan your funeral, by all means, live it up. You know, I mean, pull out all the stops. I think Wynn went out like she lived. You know, it was definitely a very much a colorful celebration of all the things that she enjoyed. And, you know, at the end, she got to see her son again. So, yeah. And then Dawn, like, confesses to her. Mm-hmm. Like, Sorry, yeah. I couldn't deliver the letter. Oh, P.S. I almost died in a plane crash. Sorry, it took me so long to get back to you, but I kind of almost died. And, and then as soon as she did that, Wynn was like, done. Okay. Pass I'm on. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about the ending of this book, because I don't know about you, but I was like, oh, Jody. It was so frustrating. <sighs> you could have just left off that last sentence. Yes. And, and like so left it... Yeah, my so, imagination. Again, we're in transition. We don't know what uh, jo what Dawn is going to do here. We don't know if Dawn is going to decide to 
go back to Egypt with Wyatt or spend like half the year in Boston and half the year in California. We don't know. Like they're trying to figure it out. Or is she going to tell Wyatt, like, you should definitely be a father to merit, but our relationship is over. I'm going to hang out with Brian for the rest of my life. Also, there's Anya. Right. Yeah. That whole relationship with Anya still isn't quite over yet. Merit asks her, like, hey, mom, what are you going to do? And she responds, I open my mouth and I answer. And those are the last words. That is the ending of the book, folks. And I don't know about you, but that left me incredibly unsatisfied because I have a great imagination and I went 17 different ways of how this can end. Because in my mind, she could have ended up completely alone. You know, just her and Merritt, like living a brand new life that we hadn't even imagined because that's what this whole book has been about. Or she's like, duh, he's the love of my life. Right. Of course. I'm going to choose him, but how do you say that to your daughter? Right. I know. Whose dad? Who's Brian? Also, her biological father. But Brian's been such a good father to her her entire life, and you know, so you don't want to negate that. So it's. uh, I understand why she did it, but at the same time, I was very frustrated by it. Yeah. Because I did my tiny little peon brain needed a little more closure than what she gave us. Exactly. All right, what are we going to drink? I mean, after an ending like that, I feel like the only thing that we can do is drink and reminisce about better days and loves that might have been and things like that. So we're going to drink a dark, seductive, a little bit complex wine. That is just like our book. (laughs) That is 100% Syrah from Cornas. Fantastic. So Keegan's going to pour some wine in our glass. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. All right, Keegan, tell us more about this gorgeous Syrah that you have poured for us. So today we're going to be drinking a 2018 Cornas from Domaine Corbis. little fun tie-in. Okay. Um, I kind of wanted to go the route of interpreting wine descriptions. Okay. Since that was all Don and Wyatt were really doing was interpreting these hieroglyphics, and they sometimes had different interpretations. Um, Because sometimes the same hieroglyphic would mean several different things. Right. You had to kind of ascertain what, in context, what it meant. You had to read between the lines. Yeah. (laughs) As we do most days. Um, So I wanted to touch on shelf talkers. Why do they exist? What their real purpose is? Are they actually helpful? So explain to me, for someone like myself, who is very much a novice in the wine world, what is a shelf talker? Because that sounds like someone like... Sci-fi, I walk by. Talk. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what that means. So a shelf talker are these descriptors that it's typically the distributor decides to put on or underneath the bottle on the shelf that describe the wine, if it had points. Okay, so like a 70 or a 94 point Syrah. And by wine spectator or wine enthusiast or whomever. Lush, soft notes of dark berries. All those things. Intermingle in your mouth. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) This is what we're going to talk about today. All all those great descriptors that someone with a very prominent English degree has definitely written. Exactly. (laughs) Um, They're often laminated. They're eye-catching. It's, you know, all that design degree that somebody Mm -hmm. got to. For sure. To get people to buy wine. Which works because I have often, I have, I will say that I have succumbed to what I now know is called a shelf talker. 
because I've never tried it before. And I was like, oh, well, I like all the words that they are saying. So why and what not? else do you have to rely on exactly. when it's French? And it, this doesn't say Syrah anywhere on the label no, itself. And the back is pretty that. much like in French. It's from Rhone. Mm-hmm. And this was imported by a company. There you go. And That's it's all got we a know. skew. Yeah. It's got a skew and it has an alcohol content, correct? Yes. Uh, legally has to have the alcohol content. So that's us. all we know about it. 14.6% right. alcohol for what we're drinking today, friends. So I also took some pictures of shelf talkers that I think would be fun to go through. And oh, we can we're going to put those on the website. So visit our website at readingbetweenthewine.blog in order to see what Keegan is going to describe next. All right. So first I want to kind of talk about the components of wine because... I feel like if a shelf talker is useful to you, it's going to give you insight on what you're actually drinking. Not to say like, this is awesome, this is perfect, this is luscious, whatever. Jeb Dunnick is one of my favorites to go to, um, and he thinks you should have insight on structure and style. I like to know if there's oak treatment. Mm -hmm. So the big one for this is Chardonnay. Chardonnay can be made pretty much any way a winemaker wants to. Right. And so a good shelf talker should tell you this wine was aged in oak or this wine was made with stainless steel. Mm -hmm. Uh, The grape blend itself, there's all these red blends on the market. And half the time, most of the time, they don't even tell you what's in the blend. Mm. Food pairings, I think that's always a good one to have on there. And because a lot of people shop with intent in mind, like, oh, I'm going oh, like, to dinner with these people. We're going to Italian or they're making Italian. What could I bring? I think like 97 percent of wine is consumed within like the first three hours of purchased. That is unbelievably amazing. <laughs> Pretty accurate, mm-hmm. at least in the United States. Um, so another one is drinking window because mm-hmm. a lot of these high point wines get that because they're ageable. And they'll actually be better if you don't drink them three hours from purchase. Which, again, I would like to know because there are some times when I'm buying wine that I'm, I would like to drink, consume it, like you said, within three hours. And then there are other times when I would like to put it on the shelf for a while so that I can consume it at a later date. Right, and enjoy it at its peak when it's and I don't showing well. Being the novice that I am, I don't necessarily know that unless I talk to someone like you at my local wine shop, who can give me that insight and tell me like, oh, this is a great wine if you age it for the next five years. Now, I know a lot of people are probably not buying wine to age it for five years, but there are a few of us out there who are thinking long-term when it comes to wine. I mean, even on that level, a lot of people are afraid to talk to a salesman Mm -hmm. in a wine shop because they're afraid that wine is this super intimidating thing and they're going to get like convinced or swindled into buying something more expensive or something they're not going to like. Right. Essentially. There's a level of trust that doesn't exist and pretty much with salespeople in general, not just wine in general. For sure. But yeah, inevitably, a lot of people end up relying on these little shelf talkers. Well, and I also feel like in our day and age and society, there's a lack of two-way conversations that happen eye to eye. (laughs) There's that. you're much more likely to text someone than you are to talk to someone. And so this whole like human interaction thing where, you know, to be able to say like, hey, so here's what I'm looking for. And actually trust that that person is like, I am so glad you asked me that because here's what I can tell you about that. Yep. Yep. Um, so for components of wine, acid is a very important part of wine. Mm-hmm. It acts as a preservative. It's what makes you salivate. It's what makes wine good with food. 
So some of those words might be crisp or refreshing. So those are good words to look for on your little shelf talker if you're looking for something like that. Riesling is one of the best well-known grapes that it's going to have like Literally, they call it ripping acid. It's shocking to your mouth. In your face. In your face. Alcohol is another one. It's like why we're fermenting grapes into wine. Well, I think one of the most valuable things I've learned since doing this podcast is that wines that have a lower alcohol content have a higher sugar content. And so knowing that now I think has helped me because I don't like sweet wines to be able to just look at the alcohol content and go, oh, nope, that's okay. Seven and a half percent. Yeah. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of sugar. Very right. sweet. I'm going to go for something that's, what, 14? 14.5. 14.5% <laughs> because I know it's going to be a little bit less sweet. It's going to hit me in a different part of my mouth. And it's what I prefer over something like a Moscato. Exactly. Um, so alcohol, you can kind of feel how far down it burns and make your own like personal gauge on where alcohol feels for you. But one of the worst pairings is high alcohol and spice. Ooh. So if you're trying to have some like spicy Thai food, like this is not the wine sure. that we're drinking today is like 14 and a half percent. And as you just mentioned, sweetness is also linked in to alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's tannin and this creates a drying sensation in your mouth because it binds to your saliva and it literally like takes all the saliva out of your mouth. And it also, in not good situations, tastes bitter and or astringent. Mm. And people, anybody that makes tea, if you oversteep your black tea, that's like the best way to get a feel for tannins. Um, But a lot of people say, I want a dry wine, Mm -hmm. which in wine speak means not sweet. But I feel like in most people's minds... When they say, I want a dry wine, they mean that I want a tannic wine. Okay. Because it's drying out your mouth. So two very different wine choices, depending exactly. on. And as the novice person coming in, it's hard for you, who's the expert, to know if I actually know what I'm talking about or if I'm just like first-time wine buyer and I've heard these words before. Right. So you're going to talk to me a little bit, chat me up for a second to try to understand like what my palate really is or... I shouldn't ask you, like, what is your process when someone like me who comes up and you don't know if I'm an expert wine buyer or if this is like the third bottle of wine I've ever purchased in my life? A kind of friendly one is like, what do you like to drink or what have you had lately that you enjoyed? Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of people are intimidated about wine. And so when you say, well, when you say dry, do you mean not sweet or do you mean tannic? Like, they're going to look at you like you're... Speaking in a different language. Like, I'm already uncomfortable with this conversation. I'm just going to go over here and buy the same thing I've bought for the past three years. So if you say, like, I like to drink Napa Cab, then that's probably your meaning tannins. Mm -hmm. Where if you say, I don't like Riesling, then that's, okay, you want something dry. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're saying, I want a super dry wine, like we said, Cab, but also like Tanat or Nebbiolo from Italy are good choices. And then body, I think, is another important aspect of wine, and that's how it feels in your mouth. We kind of describe it in the wine world um, relating to milk. Okay. So. Interesting. A light-bodied wine would be like skim milk. Okay. And then a full-bodied wine would be like having heavy cream in your mouth. Okay. And so then all like the 2% whole milk is everything in between. So that's really interesting because I never really knew. I mean, I kind of had an inkling, but 
I had no idea that it actually had a relationship to a different viscosity. Almost. Well, I mean, it's, I feel like it's something people are familiar with. Like even sure. if you hate skim milk, you've at least had it once in your life. Do you know like, that it's kind of watery? It's like water. It's kind it's of not, watery, it's high in sugar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then if you've accidentally ever had Whole heavy milk. cream instead of getting milk, you're like, Ooh, I oh. have to chew this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I feel like that's a good analogy for people. No, that's great. Um, I think but that's I feel like body is an important aspect when you're trying to figure out food pairings. Okay. So like similar body is always the good route. So if you're having soup, you want something that's more light body. It's on a soup. I mean, it could be well, gazpacho. Not stew, but I mean, like if you're having a soup, like let's say, well, you know what? Let's use an example. So let's say like a lobster bisque. So a lobster bisque is kind of a medium bodied soup, right? It's not super light. You can't see through it, but it's also not stew, chili, right. anything like that. It's also creamy. So I'd, I'd say like a like a Chardonnay doesn't have to be full bodied, okay. but you want like a creamy malolactic Chardonnay. <laughs> we love malolactic around here. Yeah. There's a lot of like nonsensical descriptors in marketing. Yeah. My pet peeve is oh, when detail. they're in the title of the wine itself. So it's soft red blend or buttery Chardonnay. It's like, did you have to put it in the title, you right. know? Yeah. And this shows up a lot in like Tetra Packs and box wine but yeah. there's all uh, like dark, dark, bold blend, mm-hmm. uh, crisp white, kind of in that infamous sure. uh, five liter box. Uh huh. Like, what is uh-huh. crisp white? You know? Right, right. Um, but then there's other like delicious, beautiful, gorgeous, stunning. Like, what does that mean? Right. As a like, wine drinker. One wine taster liked it and enjoyed it. That's what that means. It doesn't really translate for anything useful to the consumer. It doesn't really tell me anything about the wine as much as it is, again, goes back to someone with a very good English copywriting skills. So I'm going to read you some wine descriptors, and I don't want to, like, loud out any companies, and I don't know the answers. Okay. Um, But this is a red blend, and here's the tasting note. Blackberry aromas with some violets and rose petals, medium to full-bodied, tasty and delicious. Well, what's in the bottle? We don't know. They didn't tell you the blend. Right. And it got, I, it got and 93 points from James Suckling on February 14th, 2020, but they don't tell you, like, what do, what would you think the grapes are? Well, and tasty like, and delicious. I tasty kind of hope that, and delicious. I hope that's from every wine that I have. Have you had something that's tasty but not delicious? <laughs> you know? Also, like, medium body to full bodied is, like, most wine is in that range, you know? So pretty much what we've told you is 97% of wine that's out there could be in this bottle. Right. <laughs> and it's it's from California, so it could literally be anything in there, you know? Because we don't know at this point white or red. We just know tasty and delicious and medium to full body. Right. Red wine. Great. Okay, here's another one. 92 points. Robert Parker of The Wine Advocate. A powerhouse vintage with a plethora of fruit showcasing blueberry, boysenberry, plum, and strawberry. So we know it's a red blend once again because it's all red fruit. And they decided to tell us that it was a good vintage, which helps nothing with the actual wine. Right. It just tells you the fruit. That's Mm -hmm. it. Which all wine has, unless it's really (laughs) old and it's turning into vinegar, you know? I also thought it was interesting to look at some of the Chardonnay descriptors. Oh, do tell, because we've talked about Chardonnay a lot, the oaked and the unoaked. 
And we do know there's lots of different descriptors that are attached to Chardonnay. This one is a Chardonnay from Willamette Valley in Oregon. It says, soft and round on the entrance. The wine boasts fruit flavors of juicy Asian pear, honeydew, lemon zest, and apple, complemented by toast, spice, and baked bread. So there's a typo also, but <laughs> who's pe- who's pointing it out, you know? Well, we've got toast Me. and baked bread. Like, wait, we really want to enforce bread with whatever this Chardonnay so, is. I would interpret that to mean that it sees some oak treatment. And soft and round, it's probably gone through malolactic conversion. Well, and let's be real. If it mentions toast in the shelf talker, we are probably going to buy it because we love toast. Exactly. Okay, so here's another Chardonnay. This one is from Lake County, California. This richly textured and subtly spicy wine is full in feel and mouth coating. It's laced with flavors of nutmeg, vanilla, and toasted baguette that are tempting and sophisticated. I don't know what tempting <laughs> and sophisticated in a wine is like. I, I don't, I'm not sure if I love the description of the mouth-coating feel. I've never had a Chardonnay that, like, really coated my mouth. I feel like that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, but it says spicy. Someone got a little excited with the uh, descriptors there. Yeah. Um, but it says spicy and vanilla and toasted baguette, which is, like, a fancy way of saying toast. Uh-huh. So Fancy toast. We're still down, but... Um, <laughs> Definitely some oak influence there as well. Uh-huh. Okay, one more Chardonnay. Okay. This is a Napa Chardonnay. 92 points. Fresh, flavorful white wine with sliced pears and cooked apples, hence of vanilla and cream, medium to full-bodied, delicious finish, real Napa Chardonnay. Outstanding. <laughs> so. Because I was really in the market for a fake Napa Chardonnay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of fluff words. And outstanding. I feel like that's a very superfluous word there at the end because... Explanation point. <laughs> I didn't emphasize it. It's 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 on there. So um, so once again, vanilla and cream. So it's probably gone through malolactic conversion. It's probably had some oak treatment. But pears and apples are like the same kind of tree fruit. You uh-huh. know, there's that's kind of repetitive to me as well. But that's just nitpicking. I thought that was a little interesting. So um, what? So is your recommendation then for, again, someone who the shelf talker is going to have a lot of fluff in it, is your recommendation then that we find a good wine shop, have conversations with the staff that work there, and find something that we will like based off of their recommendations? You can do that, but if you hate the wine, then... Stop going to that person, right? Well, that's fair. Um, but I also, like, a lot of people, like, they're gravitated toward the points. Right. And it's like, well, that's what subjective. does 92 points mean? Right. Um, so points, scores, ratings. Uh, Robert Parker's infamous, kind of now, um, for introducing the 100-point scale. The problem with points, they don't offer any context. Mm-hmm. And as I think you just mentioned, it's pretty subjective. Right. Whereas I said, if if you've got a good shelf talker and a descriptor, it can be pretty pretty objective. Mm-hmm. I kind of like to reference the BLIC that I learned in WSET. That was a lot of initials right <laughs> there. We got a little alphabet um, going, but I'm listening. 
It's how they train to get you to think about the quality of the wine. Okay. So balance, length, intensity, and complexity. Mostly subjective. Mm Mm-hmm. But it can be both A lot ways. of things with wine we are subjective, we have well, learned. But we all have different tastes. We correct. all have different taste buds. We are all raised on different food. Mm-hmm. And um, different smells. And it's a very sensory experience. Wine can taste different on different days. It can taste different with or without food. It can taste different if you're moody or not, or your hormones might be flaring that day. And, and and so Terry Thies calls it like this this yumminess or deliciousness, like whatever you want to qualify that it just it you're wanting to drink more. Like, does it bring you pleasure? Mm-hmm. Like, hail Bacchus, all hail Bacchus. Yes. Um, <laughs> and for wine nerds, you want it to be like intellectually stimulating. Every time you go back to your glass of wine, you get something different. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the uh, complexity part. And then ageability, it's it's not necessarily which wine ages the longest, but how ageable is it within that grape's like normal time frame. And so a lot of these higher points are given to wines that age. And mm-hmm. as we said before, most people are going home and popping that bottle immediately. Right. So so my suggestion is that you find your own reviewer that aligns with your tastes okay and so if if you see james suckling 93 points and you like that wine then by all means keep buying james suckling high points mm-hmm. um, but i just kind of wanted to mention some other ones please do that are on my radar as i mentioned before jeb dunnick he started the Rhone report and then got picked up by the the wine advocate and then he started his own jebdunnick.com now and so he's well-known for writing about the Rhone, which is why I wanted to pick something that he had reviewed. Okay. And so I believe he gave this one 93 points. We'll take it. And it's from the Rhone, so it's his uh, specialty, if you will. Hey, is this from the Rhone? Yeah. Oh, good. I really like the Rhone. Northern Rhone, where all the Syrahs. Even better. Um, so he has certain team members that cover the same regions year to year. So they kind of have like a, an Italian specialist that okay. only reviews Italian wines. And um, they are subscriber funded, which is pretty unusual um, in general. So they have chosen deliberately to not take money for wines or participate in trade events. Interesting. So they really do review the wines with an objective eye. Or at least they try, you know, like there's going to be an some palette, yeah, I guess, not subjectivity and everything. Uh, right. Jancis Robinson's another one of my favorites. She's a master of wine. Um, so her websites, which is 85 euros annually. So kind of pricey, but there are some uh, vintage reports on there and free content as well. And she's kind of unique in that she uses a 20 point scale. Mm. It factors in how the wine is showing now and it's aging potential. Uh, another master wine is Tim Atkin. Ian Daggett is another awesome guy. He specializes in Italian stuff. So if you see like a 95 point from Ian Daggett and it's an Italian wine, then it's probably pretty amazing. Uh, Jamie Good is one of my favorite people. Um, his website's wineanorak.com. Known on Instagram, he does a lot of um, on-camera wine tastings. Mm-hmm. And he's known for his amazing t-shirt collection. Okay. Well, that sounds like my kind of guy too. So check out I think it's Dr. Jamie Good on Instagram. He has a PhD in plant biology, and he's really good at writing about 
the science and nerdiness of wine and writing it in an accessible way. Okay. So he's he's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, Jasper Morris, another master of wine. He's all about Burgundy. So if you're looking for Pinot Noir from Burgundy, Jasper Morris is the guy to reference. Um, but there are some good reputable magazines. Okay. So Decanter and Wine Enthusiast. That's my favorite. Do write some good ones. Mm-hmm. For the Gen Zs out there, a lot of people are also following people on Instagram or TikTok. And as I said before, if you try wines from them and you like them, then go for it. But just be wary. They might be getting paid for it. It's often a side gig. Yeah. So let's talk about what we're drinking. Okay. I love to hear about what we're drinking. Um, we're drinking 100% Syrah, as I said before. We're going to be on the right bank of the Rhone. We're in the Northern Rhone, which we talk about in the Midnight Library. Mm-hmm. That was a great book, too. If yeah. you haven't listened to that podcast, uh, the Midnight Library, another great podcast where we talk about all different kinds of lives that you could have uh, as well. So a lot of parallels to what we're talking about today. So I recommend that you head back to um, Anchor or your podcast of choice and listen to that podcast as well. So this winery has been in the family since the 16th century. Wow, that goes back a long way. (laughs) There's quite a bit of history in the Rhone for sure. Uh Uh, Currently run by two brothers, Dominique and Laurent. They have about 33 hectares, around 81 acres, and eight hectares of that is in Cornas. And that's about 20 acres. The wine we're drinking is kind of a combination of mature vines that were planted in 1919 and young vines that are around 15 years old. This is on granitic sand. Once again, we're dealing with Le Mistral, which are these super cool winds funneling down the Rhone Valley from the Alps. These wines are hand-harvested in small boxes, and this is a Syrah that's 100% de-stemmed, so it's kind of one of those stylistic choices with Syrah. A lot of people do like 100% whole cluster or 100% de-stemmed and everything in the middle. And that makes it a higher alcohol content, correct, when it's de-stemmed? Yes, because adding the stems slows down the fermentation process, therefore lower alcohol. But none of that here because we're clocking in at 14.4% alcohol. This wine spends about three weeks of maceration on the skins. It is vegan because it's unfined and unfiltered, so you might have some sediment at the bottom, especially if you give it some more time to age. Sees 25% new French oak, 20% one-year-old barrels, and 55% two-year-old barrels for 16 months. So once again, we decanted this wine. Mm -hmm. I think it could still open up a little more. But it's been probably an hour or two since it's been in the decanter. And I think this wine will last at least seven to ten years or more. But you want to drink this at cellar temperature, probably in a bigger wine glass. And let's taste the wine. Okay. I'm all for that. It's pretty intense. It's very intense. Yes, I, I could like go that. for a, a steak or a <laughs> slab of ribs right now. <laughs> Something very heavy to go with it for sure. It's rich. It's spicy, like white and black pepper. There's forest floor, and when you talked about leather, like feeling it going all the way, all the way down. down. Yes, yep. yeah. 
Uh, and that's but, that spiciness, correct? Uh, uh, alcohol. Oh, it's alcohol, pepper, we got it all happening. <laughs> um, but there's also some fruit here, um, mostly black black fruit, black plums, blackberries, maybe some blueberries. Um, I kind of get that bacon fat thing that Syrah likes to have. Um, pretty mouthwatering. I'd still say it's elevated acidity, but very, very powerful wine here. Yes, that is um, a very bold wine. So if we were going to like... I don't know, create a shelf talker about this, what would the shelf talker say? Well, <laughs> from jabdunnick.com, this wine got 93 points. Okay. And it offers a plump, rounded, full-bodied style with classic notes of smoked meats, black fruits, chocolate, and minerality. Purity of fruit, tannins, and overall balance are spot on. So I think it's a pretty good... Pretty good note. It gives you the body. It says classic notes, like you're supposed to know what Cornas should taste like, yeah. which doesn't help. Which is a, a big people. assumption for those of us who are novices. But it does say smoked meats, which which will scare some people away because if the, you don't want to smell and taste meat in your wine. Well, especially if you're vegan, right? We just said this was a vegan wine, and now it's talking about smoked meats in my wine. That's kind of counterproductive. I mean, it's like the Impossible Burger. You know, it's, it's got the feeling and the essence and the char marks, but it's not meat. Okay, that's fair. I, I, I love that you brought that in. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it's dark-fruited. There's definitely chocolate here, too. Yes. And then, yeah, fruit, tannin, and it's it's pretty well-balanced. Mm-hmm. I'll give them that. Um, like I said, I think it'll be better in five years or with some food. <laughs> and this is around $35 on the shelf. So I recommend like going out there and finding some shelf talkers if that's the way you normally navigate a wine store and finding someone you like and see if you actually like several of their wines. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to go the classic way of going and talking to your friendly wine associate at your <laughs> local liquor store. <laughs> yeah. We know a few of those, and we highly recommend that. We recommend finding a sommelier or finding a— Anyone that can talk back to you. (laughs) Right. Anyone who can speak intelligently about wine at your local wine shop uh, who really is impassioned about wine as well. I mean, the whole theme throughout this has been impassion, and there are plenty of people— in the wine industry out there who are impassioned about wine and would love to make sure that you have a wine that you enjoy drinking. And so we've thrown a lot at you today. And so there are a lot of different uh, websites and different magazines that Keegan has talked about. If you head to readingbetweenthewines.blog, we will list all of those there. Uh, We want to thank all of our Patreon subscribers. Without you, we would not stay in wine and books which are the essence of everything that we are impassioned about. I want to give a huge thank you to our audio engineer, Colin Caston, as well as our executive producer, Stacy Grow, and to our amazing uh, social media coordinator in JM Social Solutions. Thank you. And so with that, we will bid you farewell. And until the next time we meet, always keep your glass half full. Cheers. Cheers.